Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The race is on, and now the dust has settled on pre-season testing with Red Bull seemingly on top and Mercedes in the unfamiliar position of chasing. But is that an accurate picture? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to discuss how testing form might or might not translate into racing reality are Karun Chandok and Scott Mitchell. Hello. Welcome back, Karun. Good to have you back on the podcast. We were both out in Bahrain. I'm still here, actually. And I must admit, I didn't have particularly high hopes heading out here, given the carryover cars and everything, but it's actually been an unexpectedly intriguing pre-season, hasn't it? It has. You know, I think we, we've just gotten so used to the fact that we go to Barcelona testing, Mercedes rolls a car out of the tra- truck and smashes out, you know, 800 kilometres in the first day of testing and everyone either gets excited about a false dawn from Ferrari or, like last year, we all get depressed about how far ahead Mercedes are. This year, it was a very unexpected twist, wasn't it? You know, Mercedes reliability troubles and and the car not quite looking hooked up, uh, certainly on day, say, one and a half, days one and a half. Um, they came back and, of course, they will be back. But it does look like heading into the first race, the Red Bull seemed to be right up there. A very exciting prospects. And Scott, you've certainly been enjoying Bahrain albeit in a virtual sense, both through covering testing remotely and the fact you took your first sim racing victory in the GP VWC Challenge Series. Finally, some success. Yeah, it's been a long time coming. Um, I Actually, uh, there was one specific thing from F1 testing that I could genuinely apply to uh, the, the second round of the Formula Challenge season, which was uh, watching, um, is actually watching Max Verstappen's line in, uh, through turn nine into turn 10. Um, I just noticed just like just how wide he was going into the first bit. So I thought, oh, I'll bank that and give that a go and promptly found about two and a half tenths of a second the first time I drove afterwards. So that is the first and last time that I will ever be able to take driving cues from Max Verstappen. But it's, it seemed to work out OK. Yeah, well, you've got to learn every way you can. Congratulations on on that win. But we're talking about real racing today, looking ahead to the season that starts in Bahrain the weekend after this. So, Karun, let's get straight on with Mercedes. There's been so much talk about its pace relative to Red Bull and the troubles with rear-end instability. There's also plenty of suggestions they'll simply turn up for the Grand Prix and dominate anyway. So, which is it? Struggling or sandbagging? I think it's somewhere in the middle. I, I don't think they are sandbagging. When you look at the lap times on the timing screens, it's quite easy to think, oh, they're sandbagging like they do every year. But going out to watch trackside, you know, I had the opportunity to do it across all three days. And it it doesn't look as comfortable. It doesn't look as quick. It doesn't look as planted, certainly in corner entry, um, as the Red Bull does. You know, Max Verstappen was able to carry a huge amount of speed from turn into apex, um, especially in the medium slow speed corners, where the Mercedes drivers just didn't seem like they could attack that entry in the same way. And I think it's it's funny, actually, you know, on at lunchtime on day two, I wandered into the paddock and sort of had a socially distanced chat with engineers and some people at both Mercedes and Red Bull. 
And they both made the same joke with me that it looks like they swapped cars. You know, the, the Red Bull was the one that was reliable and had very good corner entry stability. And the Mercedes was the one that had spent most of day one morning in the garage and, and had no rear stability on, on corner entry. So it was as if they'd swapped cars. Um, but, you know, I think by the end of day three, certainly on the high fuel, heavy, you know, long runs, the Mercedes seemed to come back into play and they seemed to get a balance. But they were still struggling towards the end, weren't they? You know, when we we saw Lewis have a few goals at shorter runs on new sets of soft tyres, and, and he never seemed to hit a peak. He never seemed to extract that that extra performance when going from the the longer, heavier runs or to the shorter, presumably lower fuel runs. So um, I think that's something that they've also talked about publicly. I, I believe Andrew Shovlin was talking about that, wasn't he? Shovelin said that uh, that they were confused that they didn't get the step that they expected with the lower fuel stuff. You know, it was it was one thing that they were sort of still chasing the balance a little bit, but it was I guess it was quite as simple as when it came to taking a bit of the fuel out and going on the softer tires. You expect X versus uh, what you're doing on lap times, and and they weren't getting that. And I think the, the the most telling bit was he said there were there were just too many cars that were quicker than us, and that that won't be him looking at the times, will it? And saying, oh, well, we've ended on the leaderboard lower than we should be. That will be based on their expectations, their metrics and everything. And they'll be looking at that and thinking, this doesn't make sense. Why are we? Why don't, why don't we have this pace? So I think there was a genuine element of um, bafflement by the end of the, the test. But this is, what the, uh, this is what the time between testing and the first race is for, isn't it, for, for Mercedes? And Going back to the question that you posed to Karun at the beginning, Ed, about you know is it struggling or sandbagging? It, this this is where it's if they if they turn up to the Bahrain Grand Prix, qualify on pole by half a second and win, it won't be because they were sandbagging in testing. It will be because they did have some problems in testing and they did what they do best, which is go into the data, try and work out what the problem is, solve the problem, and fix it. And so, so they will just be better by the time the, the season begins. Obviously the. The key question is how much better can they get in the time they've got available? Yeah, it's all a question of how big the problem is. The assumption is that it is related to the aero rule tweaks for this year. The floor changes maybe struggling to seal the underfloor at the rear. So it could be a relatively small change to get it to work, or it could be a major problem that is related to the low rake that makes it a little bit harder to do. So that will impact how long it takes them to sort it out and if they get on top of it. But yeah, the, the probability is they'll make progress in time for the for the Grand Prix, but Red Bull still look uh, very, very strong. But the interesting thing is about that finding the extra pace, particularly when you're pushing the car more. Obviously, car weaknesses show more when you're more on the edge. The limit behaviour turns up on on corner entry, etc. And we have to be quite careful, particularly when looking at the race pace. Race pace is useful, but it's not quite as useful as it once was, say, in the refueling era when you could get a pretty close correlation then it was a bit more representative but obviously when you're doing race stints you're so contained now in f1 and if you look at the the race pace gap in a real race it's nowhere near as big as the qualifying gap so that's why qualifying is so important because that's your starting point and it gives you the ultimate potential in the car for those key moments in the races when you've absolutely got to nail it so the fact that that as Karun said the, the Mercedes never really showed a a great a great lap time even factoring in all the variations for fuel etc obviously they're not a second off but that does say there's there's something going on going on there but the thing that really struck me is given the red bull looks so good Karun. i mean i didn't see as much trackside as you do but as you did but i was able to watch a reasonable amount 
you st- you tend to think that if Mercedes gets the best out of its car and gets it working, is that just going to get it to where Red Bull already is? That's the really exciting prospect. That it's not that the Mercedes is fundamentally half a second faster than everything if they unlock it. It's if they do unlock it, it's still only as quick as the Red Bull, or there's a few tenths in it, which would be great. Yeah, it's exactly what we want, isn't it? We we want the World Championship battle to be, you know, fought out from the opening round until the last round. We want it decided at the final Grand Prix in Abu Dhabi. We and if we can have more than one team in the fight, that's even better. That's what we've craved. We had it for a little bit in 2018, you know, the Ferrari versus Mercedes. I suppose 2017 as well, we had it until the big Singapore smash. So um, I think we've we've all been waiting for a long time to have that inter-team battle. And the fact that Red Bull will also have Perez, who hopefully will be, you know, in contention. If he can, if Checo can run around, two or three seconds behind, let's say, the two Mercedes and, and Max, they can use him to go for a mega early undercut and, and do something, force Mercedes' hand into the strategy, which they couldn't do uh, in previous times. So this time around, if they have a car quick enough that they could fight Mercedes and maybe even out-qualify them, which they haven't done in recent times, um, plus have a second driver in the fight, then this is a proper, proper... You know, this will start to become reminiscent of the Ferrari-McLaren battles of the late 90s, early 2000s, wasn't it? Where you've got two teams with with two top, top drivers doing battle for the championship. And I think that optimism is sort of reinforced by the, the just the different messages that are coming out from the two camps. I, I know that they'll all, they'll all be wanting to manage um, certain expectations and get different things across. But, but if you look, at, you look at the Mercedes drivers, for example, Bottas was saying, I think, at the end of the second day, that the rear is really snappy um, <clears throat> and they've got to get it under control. And then on, su- uh, on, on on the final day, Bottas says that he thinks that they've made some improvements there. And then obviously Hamilton goes out and when, when they take the fuel out and put the soft tyres on, he has that high profile spin and he ended the test saying that it's difficult to identify one area. It's just a global lack of pace that they, that they seem to have. Conversely, at Red Bull, Max Verstappen's about as happy as as you can see max because you know that he's um he's never one to uh he's never he's never one to make a bold proclamation he he doesn't like getting involved in all the hypotheticals and stuff like this but everything he was saying was that they go out and the car runs completely without any niggles or, or or anything like that he goes out makes a setup change the car responds exactly as they expected it to respond and everything is working the way they they want it to. You can see. I'm sure you guys saw when you were trackside. I, I I was seeing it obviously from the point of view of onboards of Max's car, but just the positivity with which he was attacking the corners on the front, and then the rear would stick with it as well, and everything was just totally different. I think you tweeted Karun afterwards that it just that it, it's just inescapable that there is this feeling and expectation that Red Bull goes to the first race with a genuine chance of actually taking the fight to them, which we just haven't seen so far. Yeah, exactly. I think, um, you know, to, since the V6 hybrid era started, really, you know, you have to go back to 2013, where where they look like they could win and could fight for the, the World Championship from round one. Uh, in, in recent seasons, they've developed strongly. Look at last year, where they, they ended up, they would have probably been in very strong contention in the Sakir Grand Prix and then went on to win the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. And that's the trend we've seen in recent years. So, yeah, there, there's a real... There's a real 
you know, buoyant feeling coming from the Red Bull camp whenever you talk to people there that it's going. It, there's almost a slight disbelief on how well it's going, and they don't want to let themselves start to believe because, you know, they were they were sort of caveating things by saying, "Well, just you know, on the filming day, Mercedes, I bet they've got a, a mega super duper upgrade package they're going to put on the car on, the, on their filming day, which was uh, on the Tuesday after the test and things like that." So they're almost trying to talk themselves out of how good their preseason testing's gone, and I can understand that. You know, we've seen in the past, and we Mercedes turn the wick up when we get to the race weekend. And, and I, I, listen, I don't think we should be under any illusions that Mercedes have suddenly lost the plot. They haven't. They've just got a car that is slightly harder to get into the optimum setup window, and they're going to have to work harder than they had done in previous years. But it's going to have a knock-on effect because what, of course, they wanted, given the big rule change coming in 2022, is to just roll the car out of the truck. It goes out there. It's blindingly fast and they can stop developing this thing nice and early and put all of their resources cost capped of course these days into 2022 what we can i think conclude and we will know more in a couple of weeks time is that's not the case if mercedes want to win the world championship this year there is going to be a development war with red bull i think one of the differences between the the red bull uh, expectation this year versus last year for example is that last year they seemed to be um, having to go to certain lengths to to try and convince us and maybe even themselves that the problems that they, we were seeing in testing, the spins and stuff were just isolated incidents. How many times last year did Max say, that's just what you do in testing, you, you try and find the limit and sometimes you go over it. Um, and then they were talking up their um, uh, accelerated up, well not accelerated, but they were talking up the upgrades that they did. When the, Remember by the time the season started properly, Obviously, by that point, we would have been, I think, what, 10 races into the season or something like that. And basically, in the background, Red Bull had worked through all of the upgrade iterations that they would have had on the car through the season to that point. And what happened is they've, they threw all of that on the car and it exaggerated the negative car characteristics that had been seen in testing. And Red Bull was actually confused by it. They, didn't, they, they, they then spent a good part of the season unpicking the mistake of bringing whatever it was. I think it was three iterations worth of upgrades because they they never raced the the upgraded spec that they'd created after Barcelona testing. So last year they I don't know if they got carried away with themselves last year or they were just sort of they really wanted to buy into it because last year was supposed to be the big step and become a championship contender and it just didn't happen. So now I can totally believe why they've had they've just had such a perfect three days. I can't imagine how that test could have gone better for Red Bull. So they they must have be having to try very hard to keep their their feet on the ground because it's the hope that kills you. So if we go to Bahrain for the for the first race and the championship the the challenge for the win in the first race isn't there, that's just going to be probably the biggest blow that Rebels had for 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 quite some time. But of course, if the car is there, then it is going to have a fascinating impact on that development war that Karun referenced. And what will be really interesting is to see how the two teams approach it because generally Mercedes does like to pack up on the current year and move on to next year and it's been able to do that very often. Red Bull often has a, a habit and a willingness to keep developing through to the end of the year and they might think, well, we haven't won a championship for ages, so we're going to really go for it. So there could be some really tough decisions to be made there in terms of how you balance up those those compromises. Because, of course, although the cars are, are locked in many areas, you can't do anything structural once you get to the to the first race, even within the bits and pieces you could change over the winter. So it's all going to be an aero development war, which is a pretty tantalising 
prospect. But the, the reason I'm so upbeat about how good the Red Bull is overall is just from watching it trackside, yeah, the, the turn instability and the turn is always key. It was impressive, but I watched quite a bit of turn 11. I didn't see as many different corners probably trackside as you did, Karun, so I'd be interested to know what your impression was. But the thing that really impressed me there was how aggressively Verstappen and decisively Verstappen could get on the throttle because you just swear he was doing it really early and he was doing it so aggressive. It was like the old V8s that were less talky where you could really kind of mash the throttle more aggressively and, and the rear would stick. And he could he could do that really aggressively with, with this car. The rear was fine, whereas you watch Hamilton, he was he was doing it later, less aggressively, and still the rear was was struggling for that for that grip and traction. Were you seeing that across a wide range of corner profiles? Yeah, I think on the whole, the rear of the of the Red Bull just looked more stable. Uh, it was more on corner entry. Um, you know, when you go to places like Turn Four, Turn Thirteen, for example, where you're braking and turning, so you, you're putting a lot of obviously braking force into the car, but also a lot of lateral load uh, and. As you start to wind the steering lock on, you need the rear of the car to to stay calm and planted to give you the confidence to carry that speed into the apex. And there were there were very few cars that looked like they could be on that edge of balance. Um, actually, to be honest, most cars seem to be struggling for front end. I think these uh, new construction Pirelli tires have introduced more understeers, a balance into a lot of the cars you could see them particularly long radius corners and and you know the the, the corners where you, you you're you're shall i say changing direction turns six seven you know unless you're affected by wind they tended to have more understeer in it but the red bull was the one that seemed to have have a balance in it it you know the drivers weren't having to really weight on the front end to bite they they were on that edge of grip and that allowed them to you know release the steering wheel from the apex and just launch themselves as you said Ed, aggressively on throttle because they didn't have much steering lock you know when i watched the um some of the other midfield cars like the the aston martin or even the alpine they were they were carrying more steering lock than the red bull you know all the way through the corner and that just meant that they were slower picking the throttle up uh, and slower coming out of it. And the other thing that's interesting for me was the fact that the Alpha Tauri looked very good. Uh, and I thought it was just my eyes because, you know, I thought it does seem like it's a very, very good car. And then Martin Brundle went out to watch as well. And the first thing he came back into our office and said after watching Trackside was that the Alpha Tauri looked like a really good car. And, um, you know, this was on day one where we had the sandstorm and the very high winds uh, and in the crosswinds, I thought the Alpha Tauri looked like a very benign car. So, you know, we know there's an increased collaboration between the Red Bull team and the, the Alpha Tauri team in the last two or three years. Um, and, and I do wonder if their aero philosophy has started to pay dividends with this regulation change we've seen. Yeah, they certainly had a good handle on what they were trying to do aerodynamically last year as well. And they've made sure they tried to continue that this year. They didn't take the Red Bull free rear end upgrade that they could have done because they felt it worked better with what they knew and it fitted better with their their approach because it's not just a, a Red Bull clone. Yeah, certainly, obviously the Red Bull would be your first choice of car, but if you're picking kind of cars just to jump in and, and drive, assuming a fictional world where A, I can drive them and B, I fit in them, it would be Red Bull and then probably the Alpha Tauri, then maybe the McLaren were probably the, the three that looked just the most user-friendly from a, a driver perspective. But 
just coming back to the the whole way testing's framed, obviously I mentioned the sandbagging word, and I think sandbagging is one of those phrases that's very much misused. Uh, very often people kind of look back at what happens in testing as if it was all some part of some grand game or scheme, which is which is misleading because teams are trying to do as much work as they can in a condensed amount of time. And there is a process they're going through. These are incredibly complicated aero maps they're dealing with, which is why you see cars turn out one day with a couple of little veins changed on the floor. And that can make a fundamental difference. So it's really fine details they're working in. But you know, the, the idea that Mercedes would kind of deliberately not look very good for three days and then put a load of bits on a car on a filming day, which would be foolhardy because you've only got 100 kilometers of running and you're having to use demo tires, which will deflect differently. And, you know, it's, it's just not the way you do it. It would be a very foolish thing to do, I, I think, overall. But also, I did a piece on the race website, uh, the headline lessons from the last time Mercedes looked weak in F1 testing, which was based on 2019, when everyone said it was all about just some grand game and Mercedes hiding things. But actually, it was a far more complicated technical picture than that. And that's the thing I think we have to remember that let's say Mercedes goes to the Bahrain Grand Prix and wins, there'll be an interesting story. It won't just be, oh, they were hiding things in testing. There will be a really interesting story about how they made those fixes, how they understood what the problem was. And that complexity is always important to to, to remember. It's not just some some game of, of hiding your pace or tricking your position because Red Bull are going to make their car as fast as they can, whatever happens. Yeah, it's all. It, we always try and stress, don't we, that any analysis around testing is it's that it, it's a snapshot of that moment in time, isn't it? It doesn't mean that the first race or the season is going to look exactly like this, but you're basing it off various different data inputs. Not it isn't about looking at the lap times, and it isn't even about looking at the lap times and then equalizing everybody onto the same compound and simple little factors like this. It, it's it's much more broad. Um, people different people drawing different um different factors obviously like from from my point of view for 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 example a big part of my job over testing was um hearing from every single driver and uh, sort of uh as various team figures whether that's team bosses CEOs or um technical people uh Karun for example was very very was from a different point of view speaking to people um behind the scenes in in, in the paddock and actually getting a, a chance to see it you know live, live and in color trackside and i thought it was really interesting that we ended up coming up with basically an identical top 10 <laughs> from 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 testing i think the the only difference was um i think i i think i remember seeing your tweet Corinne, and i think you had sort of alpha towering mclaren as sort of third not really sure sort of which one was and then i think you had alpine just ahead of uh ferrari where uh, that was the only that was the only difference we had mclaren ahead of alpha tower and we had ferrari just ahead of, uh, of of alpine but we've come at that from completely different perspectives and that ended up with the same the same conclusion so i think that's we're either both idiots or or it means that there is sort of a, a, a broad correlation when you consider all the different factors that there are to consider it was also quite a tight discussion between some of those differences as well because the midfield pack so congested that a tenth more for one team and a tenth less for another can completely change the order. But I think what we have to to caveat this with, Ed, and this is where you know you and I faced a barrage of abuse, didn't we, in 2019 when we seemed to conclude that Ferrari was a team to beat, um, and then obviously we got to Melbourne and they weren't. And all of these people, uh, I remember tweeting you and me, and I remember talking to you about it, saying, you know, I don't think we were wrong. We, Based on what we saw in testing, the Ferrari did look like the best and fastest car. Now, 
we now know in hindsight that there was something funny going on there with the potentially with the engine and the fuel flow and all that stuff, which played out throughout 2019. Um, but I, I think, you know, this is where we have to caveat it slightly is there's a two week window where a team as good as Mercedes could have the car back in the wind tunnels, could have the, you know, the car on the shaker rig, could, could do a whole bunch of simulation stuff to work out how to further optimize the setup and get it back into the window um, that they want to be. And they could well rock up at the first race and be ahead of Red Bull. But I think what we can all sort of cautiously say is that it's going to be a two horse race, at least for the first few races. Um, uh, you know, I'm sure when, by the time we get to Barcelona, as usual, the teams will all have upgrades. And actually, I'll, I will even say now that when we come to faster circuits, more flowing circuits, such as Barcelona and Silverstone, um, maybe even Spa, I would actually say the Mercedes may still be the better car. Uh, I, I think it's, it's, it is actually to do with the entry to the medium and slow speed corners um, that the Red Bull seems to have the advantage now, which obviously Bahrain has got more of that than, um, than for example, Barcelona would. Well, that's absolutely the point. It's just one circuit, Bahrain. The the data from testing is so imperfect and imprecise. You can you can collate it all together and create an impression, but it's still very, very, very limited. Fundamentally, it's the error bars are, are, are massive, and then the error, bar, error bars narrow once you get to the first race. But you're still building that performance model every race different circuits, different conditions, different developments. That's the really interesting interesting thing. And I'd completely agree that the fact that the Red Bull is so, so good means that it should be thereabouts. And if Mercedes is thereabouts as well, then we've got a proper, proper two-horse race, which is what everyone's uh, hoping for. But Scott, we've talked a lot about how the Red Bull looks as a car, but a key part of that package is the Honda engine. How successful do you think it's been in terms of the major engine upgrades, the major engine changes it's made? Uh, from what I, from what I'm told, uh, it's been been very successful. Uh, I think there was a genuine, not expectation, but fear that Honda would encounter some problems um, at testing. They 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 have changed an awful lot on the engine, not to the point like in 2017 when they had a fundamental architecture change and split the the turbo and compressor, but a lot of uh, re-optimization and, as I understand it, making the engine a lot more compact. When the first images of the RB16B came out, those renders, couldn't work out whether it was a trick of the light or the the, the, the stickers on the car, but it did look like the, the car curved more aggressively in and was just much more sort of like tightly sculpted than, than last year. And I joked to someone at Honda that maybe this was a return of the... Uh, the size zero packaging, which I think was the ill-fated uh, description of how it was trying to package the engine back in the in the dreaded McLaren days, um, and I got a bit of a sort of cryptic res- response. And then when you saw the car in real life, you can see that it's a lot it's a lot neater. So I think a lot of the I think a lot of the work I, I won't profess to know exactly what Honda's done differently under the skin, but I know that big effort has gone into packing more power into a smaller place because obviously then you get the power increase but you also get some packaging benefits around that as well. Um, and the indication is that Honda has hit its target for 2021. And that target was, um, it, it, it had what it believed to be the reference point of 
Mercedes 2020 power output. So whatever Honda thought the Mercedes power output was last year, and their target was, I don't know exactly how much, but basically X horsepower above what Mercedes had last year. And they think they've hit that. So Honda is confident that it's now got a more powerful engine than the 2020 Mercedes. So obviously the big question mark there is how big a step did Mercedes make? But that in itself is already important because it means that it's given Honda a chance at having a, not necessarily a Mercedes equal in engine, but even one that's close enough to fight on a range of circuits and stuff like this. So I think really good combination of reliability and performance has uh, left Honda quite excited that there's the, the, the they've done a good job with the engine so far and there's good potential to come from it. And of course, Karun, people don't necessarily think of Bahrain straight away as a as an engine circuit, but it's very power sensitive, very traction sensitive. So it's a it's a proper test of engine performance, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you've got, you know, four straights where you're accelerating up from a reasonably slow speed. So, you know, any horsepower that you can ha- you can have to to get out of the corner and get up to speed. Plus then the straights are long enough that the drag factor is going to kick in quite significantly. And and again, you know, in that situation, if you've got more power, it helps against the drag. So um, it's also a circuit where, as we saw recently, uh, the wind can be a big, big factor. And, you know, there we've seen if you get a strong headwind down the south finish straight, having horsepower is going to be massively important. So it is a very powerful, uh, power sensitive circuit. No question about it. It would also be uh, typical of Honda, wouldn't it, to, to just get the engine sorted just as they're pulling out. I know the engine will live on in a developed form from 22 to 24 as, as the Red Bull engine, but there's a certain irony, isn't there, Scott, to the fact that perhaps the fact that Honda is pulling out has made it be ultra-aggressive with bringing, bringing forward things it otherwise would have waited for, and, and maybe it could be at the point where it's the best it's ever been as it walks away. Uh, yeah, potentially. I think that is. I think that is a factor. But I think the bigger factor was um, the step that Mercedes made last year, because the decision to go in with this engine for 2021 was actually made before the withdrawal decision was was made. They basically turned up to the Red Bull Ring last year, um, basically just surprised. Genuinely didn't expect Mercedes to make the step that it was able to make in 2020. And I think Honda internally, uh, they had some meetings with Red Bull, and I think the decision was made that we we need a bigger step. Um, we're not we're not going to be able to fight with a gentle progression. Um, so the engine that they have this year is one that they had actually planned to introduce alongside the all new um, car technical technical rules. So there was a lot of uh, that was originally going to be a 2021 engine then obviously the car technical rules got pushed back to 2022 so honda delayed that engine to 2022 as well and then they started 2020 so far behind mercedes or unexpectedly far behind mercedes and decided no that engine needs to come back to 2021 we've got to make that work Uh, so i think what it did do was create uh, an urgency to make that big change work for 2021 and not 2022 and that led to Honda pulling out all the stops because I think there's a lot of things that with a big change like they've done for this year, they wouldn't have been able to make with just normal year-on-year iterations. I think they needed to take a risk and introduce bigger things that they've otherwise been a bit hesitant to. So I think there's a few factors in there, but it's added up to what looks like being quite a quite a nice step. But what I don't understand about that is the fuel for 2022 
is is different, isn't it? It's fundamentally quite different. And uh, it was pointed out to me, not by a couple of, shall we say, rival engine people, that they're not convinced that Honda have just brought this 2022 engine forward to 21, um, unless there was, there's, it doesn't quite add up in their heads because of how different it could be with the fuel for, for 22. So obviously nobody knows technically, you know, in terms of the detail, what Honda have done, they'll never really reveal it. Neither will Mercedes or Ferrari or Renault. Um, but there did seem to be a few raised eyebrows from the people I spoke to when when I mentioned the fact that Honda have, have done, as you mentioned, Scott, you know, publicly said they've advanced their, their program a bit. It's because it's obviously on the uh, combustion engine side that a lot of the manufacturers have said needs quite a lot of work done to it to adapt to the new fuel that comes in next year. But I can't, I, I can't actually remember what the, the timeline was for this by like this uh, effort, like ten percent ethanol fuel mix that's coming in next year. I don't know if it was always coming in or is a relatively recent um, thing because obviously these new car rules would have when were they? Was it November twenty nineteen um, yeah. that, that, that they that they were announced? I can't remember if the ten percent fuel was one hundred percent locked in. Yeah, so so they would have been so they would have been planning this around it. So I, I assume that what they've done is they've brought forward everything uh based uh, and and obviously there's elements on the combustion side that are different because that will have to be changed because Honda is doing that upgrade work for Red Bull again for 2022 and which to me that's the part of the Honda thing that makes no sense to me to be to to be honest because they are uh and I know that I've got I know someone at Honda who has sort of also expressed a little bit of surprise that they've actually agreed to it because they're going to throw all this resource into upgrading this engine again for 2022 for the new fuel and it's not going to be a Honda uh, they're not going to have any branding on it. It's not going to be called a Honda. Can you imagine if they miss out against Mercedes this year and it's next year that the Honda engine wins the title? It'd be like the the engine equivalent of the Braun. <laughs> exactly. I, I, find me a precedence of, of Honda doing that and something that, that was made by their money and actually budgeted for the season in the end by them has, uh, has done the winning without their name. Yeah, it would be a, a twist of history repeating itself. But also in Honda world, Scott, It'll have a big say in the midfield pack. We've mentioned the AlphaTauri, but you took a close look at Honda Protégé Yuki Tsunoda's progress in testing. You ran an article on the race website. He's got the potential to have a big impact this year, given the car does look so strong. So is he ready? Um, I think the last day of testing went a long way to making him uh, about as ready as he probably can be. Um, is He's ready. He's definitely ready enough. Is he completely ready? No, I don't think anyone is, especially not a rookie. Um, but I'm excited about um, Sonoda. I was pleased that he was able to get that final day in because he he, he admitted he's quite. It's, he's, it's an interesting character because he's quite. Um, he's obviously very young, but he is very emotional. I think, and we've seen it sometimes in Formula Two and Formula Three, sort of snaps over the radio and stuff like this, but. He was he he admitted that after the second day he was getting a bit stressed because the first day of testing I think they had a fuel system issue which limited to I think to thirty seven laps or something like this, um, and it meant that those laps that he did do were also inconsistent because the car wasn't quite running the same every lap, um, but he did try and shrug shrug that off and said look uh, sort of said to himself okay well this is testing sort of came in thinking the first day might have some stuff so it's it's okay. Then went into the second day and he had um, he had a few different things. I think DRS didn't work at, at one point. He had, I think, on some performance running, I think they had the uh, ERS 
uh, mapping not quite right. So he was uh, running out of battery deployment at the end of the lap, which meant it just wasn't quite representative. And then most interesting was I think he had something break on the pedals. And I don't know if the two of you have had the pleasure of actually being in Yuki's company physically, but he is incredibly short. <laughs> I think he's um, I think he's like six inches shorter than Gasly. And obviously they're having to share the car. So as I understand it, they had like this pedal kit that they were making just so that that they could share the car more comfortably. But they had to basically redo his pedals around the shakedown or something when they realized he, I think he came up a bit shorter than they even shorter than they had expected. Um, and something broke. I don't know what exactly, but he said something broke on the pedals. So it just he he was just having a bit of a disjointed test. But then on the last day, he got really good mileage in. He got his first and only uh, race run in on the final day as well. And he had those performance runs at the end. Obviously, he was flattered by the fact that he was running a slightly higher Honda engine mode, Alpha Tauri or Toro Rosso as it used to be, that, that they've always done that. Um, and you can see that because I, I, I want, I, you, you two have probably watched that side-by-side lap of Verstappen and Sonoda. Um, their best laps from testing. And you, and you can see um, that the Alpha Tauri, especially once they get into seventh gear, you can see it sort of climbing through just a bit more, a bit more aggressively. Um, and there's just a couple of things that showed that they had to, they just had a little bit more to play with. And he was also opening the DRS slightly too early coming out the final corner um, as well. That flattered it somewhat, but it was, it was a very valuable final day for Sonoda. And I think had he, had he not had quite as good a final day, he might've found it a little bit harder to sort of, show why he's so highly rated um immediately but i i i think he's um i think he's now quite well equipped to go into bahrain and 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 and, and show a little bit of what of what he's got he, he he is very exciting red bull think very highly of him he's not there just because he's a honda guy um so yeah i i i think had he not had that final day it might have been a slightly more tepid start to his f1 career just obviously a little bit more learning to do on the on the job he's already he's obviously got a lot of that to do as it is, he'd have just had more to work through. What do you make of Sonoda, Karun? And also, while Scott there was talking about how much preparation he had, were you briefly thinking back to the preparation you had? I think your your first lap in Bahrain 2010 for your first Grand Prix was in qualifying, wasn't it, in the HRT? Yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was hilarious compared to, to what they did. I think, I think they've done a very good job. I was talking to Jody Eggington, their technical director. Um, I think, you know, you mentioned they've done eight or ten days with the two-year-old car, so... I don't know, you know, if you average it out at, say, 600K, he's probably done nearly 5,000 kilometers uh, or around 5,000 kilometers of, of testing in that. So they've done a good amount of mileage preparing him. And in, in that, they did things like start practice and pit stops and a whole bunch of procedures, as well as, you know, giving him the opportunity to do high fuel, low fuel, understand the balance shift and in, in, in the way that works. So I, I think they've done as good a job as possible within the regulations to prepare him um i think he you know speaking of trevor carlin and the people who ran him at, in formula 2 they said his there was a huge um huge upside of his driving style and and the way he went about it was his tire management was very good and that's something that i know alpha tauri have already seen is that his tire management on the long runs has been good so um uh, but also, he's got a very minimalist style of driving. I, I, I really liked, you know, he watches onboards. It kind of reminded me of Kimi in the mid-2000s. That, you know, very direct one one input. There's no, 
no fuss. It, it's it's a very minimalist, clean way of driving the car um, in terms of his actual steering inputs. I thought I was really impressed with that. Um, I think he, you know he'll have some shunts. He'll have some some incidents as as rookies do. You, you could see already on that day of testing. You know, I think they they chucked four or five sets of the soft tires, both the C4 and C5 at him, and he had a couple of scrappy laps with lockups and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So. I think that you know there there'll be there will be some lows as will be the case, but he's clearly got talent and speed. Um, I think it's going to help him a lot. The fact that the first race is in Bahrain, you know, he's done he's done the F two weekend in Bahrain towards the back end of last season. He's done now preseason testing there, and he's going to have the first race. And you know, it'll just help to take the pressure off his first race weekend to be racing in Bahrain rather than going to Melbourne. I think one of the things that um, that Karun touched on there about the tire management is a good example of how Sonoda's sort of leaning on Pierre Gasly as well. He's got a really, really good person to have on the other side of the of the garage because we know what level Pierre was at last year. And from from the moment he joined or was announced at the team, Yuki was was talking up the importance of of, of Pierre. And started this year, I think as well, he was saying like how much he. Um, He's got a lot of respect for him. I think he really, really looks up to him, rates Pierre really highly. And I think um, it seems like uh, Pierre's sort of responded well to having Yuki there as well and is willing to, to to help him. I know that sometimes teammates want to be as selfish as possible and some teams are probably better mentors than other, but it doesn't sound like Pierre's sort of keeping him at arm's length or, or, or anything like that. And Sonoda said that one of the things that he uh, acted on during testing was uh, trying to get some time management tips from from Pierre. Um, obviously, he pointed out that because they were running on at different times and the track conditions changed quite a lot through the day and on day one you had the sandstorm as well, that it wasn't always... Basically, he said, I couldn't get it from the data. So he was basically just talking to Pierre. He was just... that They were having conversations about it. And I think there is a big element of Sonoda where he's he's got a big willingness to 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 learn. There's a lot of really good raw ingredients there, but he's also not just relying on them. He's he's willing to sort of use them as a a base to then build from. So I think there's uh, I think there's a lot to be excited about there. Um and yeah, preseason just continued this big process with the from from the old cars. So I think he's in I think he's in the best shape of the of the three rookies and he's the most exciting. So that, that bodes pretty well. Looking elsewhere in the midfield group, although we talked about that pack of teams quite a bit during our daily test podcast, Alpine is quite a tricky one to get a proper handle on simply because they look decent, but it's not quite clear whether they're good enough to be at the level that McLaren appears to be at. So what conclusions have you drawn on Alpine and Fernando Alonso's prospects, Karin? I agree with you. I think actually on day one, when testing first started, I thought the Alpine looked good, especially on, on corner entry to the braking slow speed stuff. They were able to charge a huge amount of speed into the apex in the really slow speed hairpins like turn eight, um, turn 10. Um, and actually that was kind of reminiscent of the Renault strengths last year. You know, we saw corners like Club at Silverstone or the Monza Chicanes. You know, Ricardo was quicker even than the Mercedes or the Red Bulls. Uh, in those places. So I think they ca- they've carried on that trend. But the car seems tricky to drive in the crosswind. I remember watching at turns, at the high-speed change of direction in the middle sector, turns 6-7, uh, 
in those crosswinds. And Ocon certainly had more snaps of oversteer than anybody else when changing direction. And, and I do wonder whether that was a wind sensitivity thing. As the, the test developed, by the time I got to um, the third day of testing, I went out to watch the third morning. And it was an interesting time because you had the Alpine, I think Ocon was in the car then, with Norris was in the McLaren, Stroll was in the Aston Martin. Uh, you know, you had this this sort of group of cars out on track, all from that midfield bunch. And the Alpine just didn't look as hooked up. It, it certainly seemed to have more understeer in it than, than anything else. Um, at that point, the Alpha Tauri certainly looked like it was the best car out of that midfield pack that was on track. Um, and I, I'm not sure. It's quite hard to read into where Alonso, to answer your question, it's quite hard to read into where Alonso is against Ocon just because, you know, the, the test conditions were so difficult in terms of consistency here. You know, when we go to Barcelona, we know that before 11 o'clock in the morning, nobody can do any meaningful running, the track's too cold, etc., etc. But from that point onwards, actually conditions tend to be pretty good and consistent through the rest of the day. Here in Bahrain, the track temp, you know, in the middle of the day would be up 44, 45 degrees. And by the time we got to the, the end of the day, the night running, it'd be half that, you know, it'd be... so. That made a huge difference. I think one of the the engineers was saying to me, it could be up to two seconds, they think, the track condition, difference in the track conditions. And therefore, it's it makes it quite impossible to do the comparisons between teammates, you know, when one drives in the hotter conditions and one drives in the evening. So I think the, the only comparison we can make between Fernando and Ocon is when we get to the, you know, the business end of qualifying. On, on Saturday in a few weeks. Yeah, it's one of the reasons why in testing, even at a track like Barcelona, you have to be quite careful about comparisons between drivers because you don't, at least with cars, you get them out on track at the same time and sometimes you see them doing similar things at similar times. But yeah, with drivers, doubly so in Bahrain, it can be a bit more all over the place. But Scott, also a lot of interest in Alpine off-track. We talked previously about the uncertainty over the management structure. You've got a reasonable feel for how it's all working. Now, what are your impressions of of it and uh Davide Brivio in particular um well I, I stand by my original interpretation which is I, I just think that the I think that the other teams have a, a dedicated team principle for a reason and it's weird not to have that that same structure I think it's it, po- it poses a question mark over who has ultimate authority there will be times when <clears throat> Martin Budkowski running the show at, at Endstone for example um, is going to want something that clashes with something that Brivio, who is racing directors in charge of the team track side, is going to want. And then who may like so so that 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 then goes to Alpine CEO Lauren Rossi, who has no F1 experience and and doesn't know necessarily what the best decision to make is. I, I don't think that works. What I think does work, or what I do buy into, is the logic that they have, which is with so many races now. And so much and such a big organization, having someone who is able to be dedicated looking after the trackside stuff, that there is an there is a good argument for that. Like there is for someone who can just run the show back at base and not have to worry about going to every single race. So that's that kind of split of responsibilities I understand, but I think it needs to operate under a team principle. It needs to operate under someone for whom someone with F1 experience who is there properly unlike a, a CEO like Rossi, 
and the, the buck stops with them and they're the ones who is able to make the final decision and make work out where a priority is if there's a clash of resource or, or something like that so that doesn't make still doesn't make much sense to me however having had a chance to have a proper chat with Rivio on the final morning um I have to say he makes me want it to work because I've heard a lot of good things about him from MotoGP so I was really curious to actually get in front of him and see how he operates what his priorities are sort of get an idea of his style um and he he is one of those people who just instills <clears throat> just instills a little bit of confidence do you know you know like I think there are just some team figures who you don't I don't really know the best way to put it, but you just don't quite get the right vibe from. And they might just seem a little bit standoffish and, uh, yeah, just not necessarily the most helpful of, of people. Brivio feels rather different. Um, he's also, it's just a, it's just a good, it's just an interesting story, him switching, obviously, from being such a successful person in MotoGP. Um, so I do, I do hope it works. And, and, and the way he, the way he works with people, he's an excellent man manager. I can see now, having spoken to him, why people might respond so well to him. He's got a great philosophy on working with drivers as people, not just as racing drivers as well. So I, I genuinely think he can he can be a really good ingredient in uh, the, the, the the team working really well on race weekends and getting the most out of everything that Enstone and Viri produce. Um but obviously, whether or not whether that's enough in a team that has a potentially still fundamentally confusing structure, I don't know. He, he might just be he might just be a silver lining in an otherwise rather cloudy situation. It'll come down to how well he and Budkowski gel in terms of their communication and in terms of them having a similar outlook on things. Both individually, they're clearly accomplishing good people and they could work very well together. But yeah, it, it feels like it'll almost be by luck if they do. In so far as Obviously, that structure was created without them having had much prior experience of each other. So that that'll be an interesting little subplot. Now, Karin, also looking at another of the, the the slightly tricky midfield teams, Aston Martin, high expectations, evidence from testing and from trackside, bit inconclusive. I, I never saw that car being really leaned upon, primarily because of the turbo problems on the last afternoon. But what do you make of it? I think it's the hardest team to read, to be honest, from preseason testing because a they had a whole catalogue of reliability issues, particularly on, on Sebastian Vettel's side of the carriage. Um, and that compromises your running, right? You, you know, compromises your run plan. It compromises the way you would, you would go about things, particularly when one of your drivers is new to the team. You know, they... So, uh, and I, I came, and I said it in commentary as well at the time, you know, I've come away from the test having... This, you know, of all the opinions I might have about different teams, Aston Martin are the one I am least clear about. Um, they just, I think they're going to be on the back foot, and which is why when I sort of try to rank them, I put them below McLaren, Alpha Tauri, and um, and Alpine because I think they're going to be on the back foot given their limited mileage. I think when it comes to qualifying, you know, the that battle. Three tenths could be the difference between being P5 and P13, 14 on the grid. And therefore, if you haven't got drivers who are fully dialed into the car and fully know how to extract the last few hundreds out of it, then 
you know, you're you're gonna be at the back end of that midfield, and I I feel like just just because they haven't done the mileage, uh, and Sebastian hasn't had the chance to to a rebuild his confidence after what's been a, a difficult couple of seasons, and b to get to learn the new car and the new team. You know, we saw even in that test, he he had two different steering wheels, for example. You know, he's he's not yet at that point where he would have done enough where he can intuitively change things on the steering wheel without having to look at it. Uh, it's just small things like that. And I, I think that might hurt them when we get to, you know, the sharp end of Q2 when you're trying to dig those last two, three tenths out. Uh, the likes of Ricardo and Norris, who are who are super comfortable and confident in their cars, may just be able to extract a bit more in qualifying early on in the season. Vettel's in a situation where he is objectively the least prepared. Uh, he, he completed fewer laps than any of the, the regular drivers, um, sorry for not considering you a, a real driver, Roy Nassani, in this in this context anyway. Um, and he he didn't within that he didn't have what he calls a performance run. And I'm sure that each team and driver probably has slightly different definitions of what they consider a performance run. But the point is that as Karun was saying, if you're going to go into qualifying and not be able to get those last few hundreds out, then you're gonna you're gonna struggle in that tight midfield. And if Sebastian hasn't hasn't even had chance to properly lean on the car then that's that's a problem especially when it comes to familiarity and stuff like this because I think consider three of the other four drivers that have had big moves in the offseason they've all been running in 2018 or 2019 cars um, so they've just had that little bit extra just to familiarize themselves with processes and, and, and things like that as well and Sebastian didn't have that chance beyond the the AMR 21 shakedown so yeah it, just to it just underlines the fact that he is he isn't where he wants to be. He said that he's still going to be going, still going to be in that steep learning curve in the in the first few races. So that that and that's a shame because it would have just been so good to see him come out the blocks. And he might he might well do. He, he might he might gel with this car so nicely that as soon as he turns it on in practice and then especially in qualifying, he's like, oh, this is oh, brilliant. I've got my mojo back. I'm absolutely on it. But. We know that Seb is someone who understands the the benefit and the necessity for marginal gains, uh, and on on that count, he is lacking them compared to to, to some of the others. But it doesn't mean he won't get there. Um, going back to a thing that Karim was saying earlier about you get you get grief after the fact because because things don't turn out exactly as you said they were after testing. We've already had that in a video we've done that's on the races YouTube channel, which looks at the five guys who have made these big moves for 2021, who's the most ready. And in that video, I've said, you know, Seb is objectively the least prepared of, of all of them. He's done the least mileage and he's had the least time in the car. So he just is. And someone has immediately interpreted that to mean, so you've just said that you can't make concrete conclusions from the data. And the first, first thing you do is make a concrete conclusion from the data. <laughs> you just can't. You can't you can't win sometimes. I would love it if Seb turns around in at the Bahrain Grand Prix and absolutely smashes it out of the park first time. That'd be great. But just purely based on testing alone, he, by his own admission, isn't quite in a position to do that. I'm quite confident that Vettel will, will do decently this year. He can be so good when, when things are right. The one little asterisk I've got against Aston Martin is because that car is so similar to the Mercedes, similar aerodynamic philosophy. You just wonder if there's some commonality if 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 Mercedes is having some troubles with the lower rate concepts and you know, controlling the tire squirt and the underfloor and sealing the underfloor and all those things that Gary Anderson's talked about. 
in depth in the past, could they be struggling as well? So that that's an interesting question. But yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a blank slate, Aston Martin, but I'd expect them to, to do well because it's a team holding high regard. Andrew Green, really good technical director. So I'm sure they'll make they'll make good progress, but I wouldn't be surprised if they were qualifying on the third row in Bahrain. I wouldn't be surprised if they were qualifying on the seventh row on the way things are going. They've probably got the biggest biggest sort of spread in terms of where they could or could not be, depending on on how on top of things they are. But like we say, it'll all shake out when we get to Bahrain. Well, thanks very much, Karina and Scott, for your insight. Take a look at therace.com and don't forget the hyphen. Plenty to read there. Check out our YouTube channel as well. Simply search for The Race. And if you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And maybe if you enjoyed it, even leave us a review on your podcast supplier of choice. We'll have our full season preview at the start of next week. And then, of course, late on Sunday night after the race, we'll have our review of the Bahrain Grand Prix. So thanks for listening. We'll be back with more F1 pre-season excitement soon. (laughs) 